0: Welcome back to Four Eyes, the podcast series that gives you a clear view into the optometry world across Canada and the U.S. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Amrit Bilku.
1: I'm Dr. Deepan Kar.
2: Hi, I'm Dr. Ravinder Rendala,
1: And I'm Dr. Alex Kuhn.
2: So this week, we have a new drug that's going to be out on the market. It's called Zerviate. It's a new anti-allergy eye drop that is released by iVans. It is by prescription only, dosed twice a day. Right now, it's only available in the States, not in Canada yet. Mm-hmm. So, this is an
0: active ingredient called satyrazine 0.24%. And it's actually delivered with common ingredients of glycerin and hydroxypropyl methyl cellulose, which are basically the two common ingredients in tear lubricants, so that it provides anti-allergy relief, and optimal comfort at the same time.
1: Which is great because most antihistamine drops are so drying to your eyes. Yeah. So this will be really great. I wonder when it's going to come into Canada. I don't think um, there's any like reports of when it's going to come to Canada, but Mm -hmm. hopefully soon. Yeah, this will be really exciting if it does come to Canada
0: because um, cetirizine used as a topical form. This is the first time ever, I think in like 10 years that there's been a new development in an anti-allergy drop. And, um, I, you know, looking at the list of all the anti-allergy drops that are available in Canada and the U S this is the only one that has cetirizine in there as, um, the main ingredient.
2: Uh, there were clinical trials that were done. Um, and within, in the clinical trials, it showed rapid relief of itching within three minutes. So, which is really good. Yeah, that's really good. Um, And the itching was relieved for up to eight hours in those moderate to severe allergic conjunctivitis patients.
1: Eight hours? Holy.
2: This, that's a lot. That's
1: a
0: lot. I feel yeah, like- and then since this is a prescription drug, um, it's not over-the-counter, the company IVANCE is actually offering a copay savings program Um, to patients that you want to prescribe this for and so you can check out those copay savings at www.myeyesavings.com. they're trying to make it as affordable for patients as possible especially if your patients have tried other over-the-counter anti-allergy drops before and it's just not um, doing enough for them.
1: So in other news, the Lancet Medical Journal came out with a brand new article about retinopathy findings in COVID patients. So um, in the study, there were 12 patients aged 25 to 69 years old, and they were examined with retinal OCT imaging 11 to 33 days after COVID symptoms began. So what they found was Um, these hyperreflective lesions at the level of the ganglion cell layer and IPL, and more prominently within the papillomacular bundle in both eyes. And few of these patients also had very subtle cotton wool spots and microhemorrhages along retinal arcades. There was no anterior or posterior inflammations in the patients, and they were pretty much all asymptomatic. So they all had normal visual acuities and normal pupillary reflexes.
2: So like when I was looking into the article, I kind of wanted to see if anyone, if any of the patients had any difficulty breathing. Yeah. And then it did state that all the patients had uh, dyspnea, Okay. So, which just means difficult or labor breathing. So, I oh, okay. was kind of wondering if like the cotton wool spots or microhemes were potentially caused by them like coughing or yeah. like, trying to breathe. Yeah. So, the article didn't really state anything about that, but um, that's my two cents.
1: <laughs> <laughs> to your two cents, Rav. Not that your whole my two dollars.
2: Your no, just got that two COVID <laughs> money right now. She can't
1: afford two dollars.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> too much, man, Um, too too much.
1: But yeah, so these can these obviously can be easily missed because the patients will not have any symptoms and everything will look pretty much normal. But once you do that OCT, then you might see it. But there hasn't been any findings on, like they have to do more long-term studies to see how this will affect um, these patients long-term.
0: And I'm really interested to see if like um, these findings are going to be stable within the retina for a long time or if they're going to kind of dissolve and go away and then 10 years later no one's going to know that they had this Um, or if it's going to progressively get worse that would be really interesting to know
1: there's probably so many more patients with these findings too but nobody's Mm -hmm. like looking because they're not symptomatic so it's like
0: and I wonder honestly how many optometrists are really accepting patients that are COVID positive too, like, uh, like outside of a hospital setting, right? Like, um, I feel like we're not going to find a lot of ocular findings because every time someone tests positive for COVID or a screening question, most optometrists are probably just turning them away anyways.
1: Or yeah, telling them to stay home until they get better. Yeah.
0: So I feel like a lot of those findings are probably going to, they're going to go, um, unseen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The third thing
0: in optometry news this week, Black Eye Care Perspective is promoting a 13% pledge. So, Black Eye Care Perspective, if you guys don't know yet, was founded by Dr. Adam Ramsey and Dr. Daryl Glover, and they're initiating a 13% promise in the eye care industry and profession. So, this is because the US Census data shows that 13.4% of the US population is African American. But Black doctors or African-American doctors only represent a really slim percentage of all the doctors in the U.S.
2: It says that 1.8% of practicing optometrists are African-Americans.
0: Black Eye Care Perspective wants a 13% promise to basically promote more inclusion of the Black community in the eye care profession and industry. So basically, if you go on their website, blackeyecareperspective.com, you can join the pledge and reach that 13% in your own clinic or your own company or corporation, Um, they're offering assistance and consultations to help companies and even schools to learn what they can do to incorporate more Black students, doctors, teachers, uh, staff members, leaders, and directors in our profession.
1: Wait, so but it doesn't have to be owners either, right? It could just be anyone...
0: It could be anyone. So basically, anyone can join the pledge. Um, If you're part of a company or a private practice, or some sort of corporation, and you work with other people, um, and you feel like when you take when you take a step back and look around at your place of practice, and you see that there aren't that many, um, you know, black Americans or black Canadians in your profession, then you can sign up and just kind of learn how can you um, encourage more black people to join your profession or include them I think this is a big one for schools that I can like I feel like we can directly relate to because at ICO the amount of black students that were at ICO was very low yeah so I think for schools this is going to be a huge thing and I hope they actually really help out the schools to try to incorporate more black students yeah today I'm really excited because we have my residency mentor and colleague, Dr. Deborah Lee, who is an exceptional optometrist and clinical professor at UC Berkeley. She has all the knowledge and many years of experience when it comes to amblyopia, strabismus, binocular vision, you name it. And so we've invited her to come onto to Four Eyes to share that info with you guys today. One disclaimer, this interview, again, is recorded over Zoom, so apologies in advance for any audio lag or any distorted sounds. Dr. Lee, would you like to give us an
3: introduction about yourself? Sure. So, as you mentioned, my name is Dr. Deborah Lee. I have been practicing since 2008 when I graduated from Berkeley Optometry. Um, after that, I did a one-year residency in pediatrics at SUNY, and then started working back at Berkeley Optometry at, at the Binocular Vision Clinic. Um, so I am there now full time. I teach, I also uh, teach in the clinic as well as in a couple of the didactic courses in the binocular vision labs. I used to work in a community clinic until I decided to pursue my master's of public health. So I actually dropped that second job, um, continued on to get my MPH. And now I also have two little children that basically take up the rest of my time. <laughs>
0: Yeah, we wanted to invite you on to Four Eyes today because you know everything and anything about binocular vision, amblyopia, strabismus, you know, vision and learning. And a lot of our listeners and some of us at Four Eyes, you know, work in private practices um, or corporate practices and, you know, they might not have that much exposure to pediatric patients. So we wanted to do a huge discussion on amblyopia today.
3: Your introduction is very kind. I wouldn't say I know everything, but I, I have some years of experience to them
0: that I That you will find helpful. <laughs> More than we do. So that's all that matters.
1: <laughs> so just to get things kicked off here, uh, is there an age limit to treating amblyopia? So
3: that's a, that's a great question because if you had asked that same question maybe 10 years ago, and arguably depending on who you ask, uh, many will say that there is still an age limit. Now some some say that the age limit is age seven because that is more or less what people think of as the end of the critical period of development. In other words, your visual system is less plastic and therefore you, you may not get that much visual acuity recovery or visual function recovery. Um, there's an older paper out, that was published out of an ophthalmology journal, I think in the 1980s that said age 12 was the cutoff and you may hear that a lot from, um, from others saying that you have to get in all amblyopia treatment before age 12 because after the kid turns 12, there's nothing you can do. Um, I think a lot of the more recent research, both out of the uh, out of PEDIG, which uh, P-E-D-I-G stands for the Pediatric Eye Disease Investigators Group, um, and some more of the recent research is really showing, you know, there's not really an age limit. Um, certainly, kids that are younger will respond faster, um, so they may not need as much treatment. But it's almost like the sky's the limit. So, you know, these days, at least at Berkeley and many other places I can think of, it's like, well, why not try? Mm
0: -hmm.
3: So being like kind of in a private practice, so if I get like an embryonic patient in my chair, what would be the best method of treatment? Like where do I start first? I think some of the considerations you would need to take into account is, well, what tools do you have available to you? Yeah. I'm practicing in an academic institution and in a specialized clinic like the binocular vision clinic, we have so many things. Like we have red-green filters, we have red lens filters, we have polarized mm-hmm. filters, we have patches of all types. Um, we, we offer vision therapies. So we have a lot of things at our disposal. Uh, when I practice in a community clinic uh, with that population, we were really limited to patching or atropine, even though some of the research is showing now that there may be other types of treatments that are equally as promising, if not more, um, that's still the mainstay. It's still the gold standard. It's what all of the papers are still comparing to. Um, it's also the easiest to do. You know, yeah. you, you either get an eye patch or a post-it or tape or, or something to occlude one eye, you know, or 1% atropine has a generic, at least in the U.S. Um, so it's it's a really cheap, you know, pharmacological way of treating it. Mm -hmm. and it's equally as effective. You only have to dose it on the weekends. Um, So that, I think in private practice, those would be the easiest things that you could reach for. Yeah. What about like binocular amblyopia? So binocular, that's a good question, because those treatments I just mentioned are really more like binocular, yeah. Right, it's really for unilateral amblyopia. Mm -hmm. If you have bilateral binocular amblyopia, uh, you're really limited to refractive correction. There's not a whole lot more that you can do, especially if the amblyopia is equal. Yeah. You know, meaning like maybe it's, you know, again, when I was in community clinic, is a lot of high SIL, right? So it's yeah. like bilateral, meridional amblyopia, both eyes best corrected, 2040. That was pretty common. You know, the good news is that when you look at the pedic studies, uh, at least a quarter of those patients with glasses alone can get to 2020. Okay. And then a vast majority of them can get at least a couple lines better, so 2040 to maybe 2025. So that's still a good proportion. Um, yeah. You know, it's not everybody, but it's, it's good.
1: <laughs> yeah. So say if you start with a glasses prescription um, for amblyopia, how long should that be done for? Or how long should you do that before considering other treatments like patching?
3: Oh, totally. So in terms of follow-up, um, what the pedic studies did, and I think what mo- many do now, is following up about every six to eight weeks. Let's say step one is you see the you see the patient newly diagnosed amblyopia, see them back in six to eight weeks um, after you prescribe your glasses, measure the VAs, and if they've gotten better, see them back in six to eight weeks, measure again. You're going to keep doing that until you get two consecutive visits of the same VA. Because okay. that that would signify that there's some type of plateau, and then you would move on to whatever your next treatment is that you want to do, whether it's occlusion or pharmacologic, okay. some yeah. type of penalization.
0: Okay. Would that so, follow-up period be the same if you were giving them atropine or patching? Would you still follow up every six to eight weeks and then do
3: the same thing? Uh, in theory, yes. Now, I, I will say, the reason I say in theory is because that's what the papers recommend. Um, it's every six to eight weeks since we have a large pediatric patient base and some of our parents that we have worked with are not as comfortable with atropine, for example, Mm -hmm. I may choose to follow them up a little bit sooner just to make sure there's no adverse reactions or difficulty with drop installation or, you know, some other type of troubleshooting I would want to work with sooner. Yeah. Okay. And so how do you know when to stop the treatment? Like what's the deciding factor or when do you start tapering the treatment? Yes. So, you're, so these are patients you're going to be seeing very frequently, almost yeah. like the glaucoma patients that you're seeing every you know, handful of months. These patients you're seeing every six to eight weeks and you're going to keep going until the VA plateaus. Um, yeah. So once the VA plateaus and hopefully it plateaus at 2020, then you can slowly start to taper. If the VA plateaus um, <laughs> um, and no improvement, then you can choose to increase the patching so what the studies recommend is if you started with two hours, you go up to six hours, which is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, as an aside, I will say, I, when I have recommended that, very, very few of my patients are actually compliant. Yeah. It's just imp- impractical for school-age kids. They, they just won't do it. Um, mm-hmm. But nevertheless, the research says you up it to six hours and another percentage of patients will improve. Um, once you're for sure got a plateau there, then you start to taper. Um, and I like how you said taper rather than discontinue, because that's mm-hmm. also what the research shows. Um, if you discontinue abruptly, the chances of the VA regressing or rebounding back to where it was are much higher. But if you taper, kind of like a steroid, I guess, if you taper, yeah. then you, uh, the chances of the VA staying where it is uh, on post-treatment is much higher.
1: As you were talking about, compliance with wearing glasses and patching can at times mm-hmm. be really difficult, right? Yeah. So educate the patients and parents on the importance of following a treatment protocol. And how do you deal with non-compliance?
3: Oh, that is, it is so hard. And again, as an aside, the hardest patients that I have, the most stubborn ones, are the anisometropic hyperoaks, right? It's those people that are like plano in one eye and like plus three in the other, because they really don't see a benefit of having their glasses on or off. And then once you patch them, it's, you're reducing the vision even <laughs> for them during during those couple hours. So they can't play their video games or, you know, you know, see the things they want to see. And so those are the patients that tend to want to peak. Uh, unfortunately, compliance for patching tends not to be very good. So a lot of it's parent education. Um, a lot of it is saying, you know, if you invest the time now, invest the energy now, the chances that the vision will get better are much, are, are much higher. For some of my older patients where it's going to be harder, I usually dangle the driving thing in front of them, saying like, well, you know, if if you want to be able to pass the DMV test without any issue, and at least here in California, you need 20, 40, um, better in each eye. So a lot of times that'll be our goal. Um, Sometimes if they're sports players, we'll talk about uh, stereo because that does tend to be reduced as well. After that it gets really hard. It's, uh, with classical patching or atropine, it's really hard to motivate those patients. Um, that is where some of the newer treatments can be helpful because they utilize things like video games and some things that are more interest-driven, you know? Mm -hmm.
0: You did just briefly mention the newer treatments that are emerging for amblyopia. So for some people who are not following up with the literature right now, can you actually explain that a little bit more?
3: Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so for years and years, it, it, you know, patching and atropine and then a third one, which is the Bangor filter, just a frosted occluder, the, that, you know, that was the mainstay of, of amplyopia treatment. And I think we're really seeing that landscape start to change in, in these upcoming years. Um, there's this concept called perceptual learning that is actually a term coined from, this, uh, from psychology. And it has to do with learning, you know, teaching the brain how to think a little bit better, for, for lack of a better term. And since amblyopia is known as a cortical issue and it really has more to do with teaching the eyes to recognize how each each of the eyes works and work together a little bit better, some of those concepts started to to be used for amblyopia treatment. Um, The way to do that is they started to change video games um, to kind of gamify it and and teach the eyes to work together a little bit better. It's like really fancy anti-suppression activities. So all of these activities have to do with targeting suppression, which is a key issue with patients with amblyopia. You know, some of them use virtual reality like the Oculus Rift headset. Um, Vivid Vision is one of the big companies that does that. Um, And one eye sees one image, the other eye sees a similar image, but the resolution might be a little bit better, a little bit worse, contrast might be a little bit different to try to teach the brain how to use both eyes together a little bit better. Um, a lot of the literature that's come out of UC Berkeley and many other areas um, has shown that this is equally as effective, if not more effective, at improving visual acuity. And because it targets a binocular vision, it antisuppresses, stereo tends to be improved as well. It's actually shown good success, if not better, in all types of amblyopia as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing this is more like an in-office treatment only, Right. You know, it's so it started off in office. Um okay. and now the vivid vision that, that the company that is probably the best known for their virtual reality things, mm-hmm. um, I think they have some, some home oh. versions as so well. like They have the headsets, okay. Right, right. So the patient doesn't need to get the headset. That's okay. Um, yeah. So one of the reasons why I don't often bring it up as a private practice issue is because um there's a cost. <laughs> like, yes. Right. It's like there's <laughs> you know, this is not going to be that accessible for every single patient um there are some mobile device apps that also use red green um Mm -hmm. that can be helpful none none of these are research-based they're um, they're just kind of borrowing off of or piggybacking i guess off of concepts and research right now those Mm -hmm. are a little more cost effective but hard to say how effective they are you know okay
0: So like um, perceptual learning, I feel like is, you know, in vision therapy, we incorporate that. So we do vision therapy on amblyopic patients as well. People should know that there's an option to do multiple of those treatments at the same time too. Like we have some patients um, that we worked on together who were still doing their two hours of patching a day, but then they were also enrolled in vision therapy. So they're, they're kind of, you know, doing both at the same time to just get the maximal effect. Totally.
3: And actually, um, one of the things that, uh, as you were talking, reminded me, you know, this concept of perceptual learning and anti-suppression stuff, you know, it's touted in literature as being new, but it's things we learned in school. You know, it's it's like you learned about vision therapy. You know that it exists. Um, optometrists have been doing it for a long time. Um, so it's almost like the research is just starting to almost frame it in a different way um, to see that it can also be helpful for amblyopia, even though ODs have been doing this for a really really long time
0: to make it more appealing to everyone.
3: Else. <laughs> Maybe freshen it up a little bit. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, so for primary care optometrists, um, I know we kind of talked about this a little bit at the beginning of the conversation. But what are the success rates for treating amblyopia in teenagers and adults? So it's it's a really good question. I don't
3: have hard um, percentages to draw you to. Um, the pedic studies go as high as age seventeen. Um, so, and what they found was that at least in the cohort of ages seven to 17, it's not as effective as before that age seven, um, but it's still effective. What I don't have, however, is people older than that. Okay. You know, you have to start looking at some of the perceptual learning research papers and the video game research papers and to find even subjects that are older than age 17. So they're not randomized clinical trials. Um, people are still recruiting for those. But I don't have a percentage for you that I would feel comfortable, you know, quoting and therefore quoting like a patient, for example.
0: Okay. I think our conversation might just transition from amblyopia at this point into prescribing for hyperopes because sometimes okay. that goes hand in hand, right? Sometimes you always... You know, we were taught in school to always kind of push plus as much as we can. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are obviously certain situations that come up where we don't know what's the best way to prescribe. Mm -hmm. And so, um, like for a specific example, you know, if a child has no strabismus, um, but they have some moderate high hyperopia, um, how would you go about giving them their refractive air, especially after emetropization has been completed? Like, is it safe to assume that we can maybe undercorrect, or how would we kind of go about that?
3: It's a really good. It's a good question. I know, uh, Dr. Bill Cooley, I think you've probably come across this many, many times in your, in your residency. I feel as weird well. being the one to ask. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as I'm sure, as I'm preaching to the choir here, where there's not really a set standard when it comes to prescribing for hyperopia. We actually give a short lecture in the summer to our new third years on this, and there's a couple papers I usually draw from. One is authored by Dr. Sue Cotter. I think it was from maybe four or five years ago that talks about prescribing for hyperopia, for childhood hyperopia. Um, and then there's another one, I think by, uh, I forgot the first name, Leach is the last name, um, L-E-A-T. And that one is also from a number of years ago. I'm sure, you can understand that prescribing philosophies are not a sexy topic to publish on all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but those both give pretty good uh, guidance. And the binocular vision clinic and my training I'm, you know, we're taught to to take a lot of things into account. So it's not just the refractive error. It's not just the VAs. It's also the ocular posture. So your cover test. It's also the accommodative status, like Dr. Bilku is mentioning. It's also the vergences. You know, there's so many things. That said, um, you know, if in light of normal accommodation, normal ocular posture, normal vergences, and just high hyperopia, I think you'd be safe cutting up to about plus three. Um, but three diopters, at least that's what I was taught. That's what I've seen in papers. That's kind of your hard cutoff. From the- cutting back from the cyclo, correct? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Cutting yeah. back from the cycloplegic. Yeah. Um, now there, there is a separate argument. You can say, well, do I have to cyclo them versus, you know, do a tropicamide? And I think at least for young children, they feel that one percent cyclo is the best way to go. Yeah. Kind of like going back to that topic, as you said, like everyone has their own method of prescribing.
2: Plus, very young children, what's your general like rule of thumb of how much you're going to prescribe? Like, I'm talking
3: about like kids from like one to seven. So, especially in the early ages, we'll say before yeah. they enter school, um, yeah. I tend to take very much of a wait and see approach again because I'm looking to see how much of emerstorization may still occur. Okay. You know, and they're not really in school yet, so the visual demands are not as high. So unless there's a strabismus that I am worried about or the binocular function, I will up to maybe about plus three. I'll tend to wait, wait and see. Wait, okay. Yeah. I've yeah. seen optometrists, you know, wait a little bit on higher, so like a plus yes. four or a plus five. I think then I start to get a little nervous because I want to make sure that there's no amblyopia that may possibly, you know, occur. Uh-huh. Um so I also want to make sure I'm not missing like you know an isotrope. You know? Yeah. Um after that. Uh, Dr. Bilk, who can probably attest. I usually try to push as much plus as I can. I think it's okay. my background. <laughs> so <laughs> so like the moment they start school, like, then you want to yeah. push the yeah. plus
2: plus.
0: Okay. Also, because That's- with kids, with kids can adapt so easily mm-hmm. to yeah. anything you put in front of them, um, especially with even sill, because a lot of people, um, uh, I hear sometimes that they're nervous to give children um, a higher sill mm-hmm. that they have, but honestly, they adapt pretty well yeah. whenever you prescribe them
3: yeah no they, they really do and um, I, I want I do want to echo that because I think sometimes I see you know some of my recent grads or some other private practitioners to be a little nervous mm-hmm. on, pre- on prescribing a little heavy so they'll like back off you know either you know it might be on the sill it might be on the plus sometimes it's prism they're like I see a trope I only want to give one prism after like I don't know if one's gonna do what you want it to do you, you know so I would encourage, I was similar, I would encourage you not to you know, prescribe enough you feel that will make a difference.
1: Um, so kind of transitioning into more random questions. <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts on emphasizing um, full-time glasses wear with or without prism in a patient that already has an established constant strabismus?
3: Sure, so a constant strabismus, um, meaning that they don't really have any binocular vision, and so, you're really just correcting, I guess, the refractive error. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, some people feel that glasses are good for protection because okay. the eye that's the constant trope usually has some um, measure of amblyopia. Um, their stereopsis is usually down. Mm-hmm. And so, because of that, sometimes their hand eye coordination may be affected, their tracking may be affected. You know, there's some other, I guess, motor skills that, that may be affected kind of as a secondary measure. Um, so, some people will feel that glasses are definitely necessary. Um, I'm fine with that. I think I think that's okay. You know, I will say that it probably does not make that much of a difference to the troping eye. You know, they're likely suppressing that eye. Not that, that it sees nothing. I mean they still get field out of that eye, but it's not it's certainly not the eye they're relying on the most. Okay. So, I don't know, Dr. Bill, could you wanna comment on that?
0: Actually, yeah. I think I was gonna add another scenario to that, which would be a good one to bring up. So um, adding on to what Deepon's saying, so if you have a patient that's a constant strab and you're giving them a full-time Rx, would you consider giving them PRISM? Because, you know, if they're suppressing, are we giving them PRISM to gain fusion or are we giving them PRISM just for cosmesis? How would you kind
3: of approach that situation? Sure. So prism is um, is tricky when you're dealing with someone who's a constant trope and has zero I mean so when we say constant trope, just to clarify, we mean someone that has zero binocularity. Like no matter what you do, no matter what type of BV testing you do, you're like they're suppressing that eye everywhere. Um, so in that case, when you are prescribing prism, the prism's not really going to create BV where there is none. Okay. You know, so, so then what is the prism really for? It could be for cosmesis. So you could consider some prism. Um, to help kind of move the images so the eye doesn't look maybe as exotropic, um, it could be because you want to shift the image in, in a certain direction um, to for whatever reason maybe just for patient comfort. Um, but you kind of get the idea. It's not really to help the vision. It's more for some of these other external factors. Yeah. So if you have a if you have
2: a patient like a child and there's like a conflict between controlling your binocular vision issues or providing clear vision. So like, for example, like they're like a low hypero, and they also have an intermittent exotropia, but their accommodation is poor. So mm-hmm. do you want to give them, do you want to give them less plus to control the exotropia? Or do you want to give them the full plus to help with accommodation?
3: Yeah, that's, that's a hard one. That's a hard yeah. one. <laughs> really, you're, you're, it's basically your virtues and the accommodative system are at odds with each other. Um, <laughs> You know, so in that case, you know, some supplemental information that might be helpful to guide you would be like an ACA, okay. Because then you can help figure out like, well, maybe the ACA is really low, so not correcting the hyperopia is probably not going to get me very far. You know, maybe I need to supplement supplement with prism. You know, it helps give you a better idea of what effects the prescription or lack of prescription would have on the posture. Um, but that's where at least, very generally speaking, I would start looking at things like prism. An mm-hmm. ad, whether it's a minus ad or a plus ad, um, to help work with the uh, the prescription so that I can find a happy medium.
0: Yeah. Okay. that's a good question. I feel like because a lot of kids that I've seen usually will be like exophoria, mm-hmm. and then they have accommodative insufficiency. <laughs> like, basically me. I was like, <laughs> I feel like personally in that situation, I would want to give an ad for their accommodation or at least. Push a little bit more of that plus for near work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd probably, depends on how high their exophoria is. And also what Dr. Lee said um, on what their ACA is, I'd probably show them a little bit of prism for near as well, because it's never wrong to give both. It always depends on how comfortable the patient is going to be wearing that prescription. And like Dr. Lee mentioned, is that extra prism or that extra plus gonna do what you want it to do at the end of the day
3: do
2: you have prism in your glasses Emmett? yeah i do you do <laughs> right okay
0: i'm a, so for all of our listeners that are interested <laughs> in my eyes nobody but <laughs> i'm a what like a 12 exophoria at distance and 25 at near and then uh with lasik i'm a low hyperope so i do use a plus one reader's um, with a little bit of that stigmatism, and then I also have about six base in total in my reading glasses. So I have both, and I love that because if I just look through plus, I'd be done. My eyes, my both my eyes would be out here. Yeah. <laughs> so I need both, and it's pretty
3: comfortable.
0: But for kids, it's hard to trial things with kids because they're they're fine with everything. So I would go with your gut instinct once you've done the measurements. And think, you know, if I give this kid like another plus one, maybe I'll throw in a little bit of base in and see what it does. Trial it in office, mm-hmm. repeat cover test and see what it does. And then just give it to them.
3: Yeah. I, I would also agree that um, a kid's subjective response you might not need to take with a grain of salt because sometimes they say they don't like, they don't like it and it's actually because your trial frame is too heavy. Yes. Or there's some there's just like some other external factor they don't like. And it's, and they're saying they don't like it, not because of what you did, but because of something else. Maybe, you know, maybe they don't like your shoes or something and they're like, yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't want anything you give me. So,
1: <laughs> so for this next question, I guess uh, I'll throw it out to Dr. Lee and Dr. Bilku. <laughs> um, so in your guys' opinion, what are some resources that can be used to keep up to date with the latest amblyopia treatment and when to appropriately prescribe for children?
3: You know, that is a hard one because I, unless Dr. can maybe you're more up to date than I am, but I do not know of any good centralized area for clinicians uh, when it comes to amblyopia. You know, I, I struggle because I, this is, you're not the first person to ask me that question either. You know, when I think of where I go to, to look for the most recent information, you know, I'm in academia, so it's oftentimes papers or, you know, publications or um, different types of meetings. But I can't really think of a good centralized area that's that's good up to date. I, I don't know, Dr. Bilka, do you do you know anything special that, that I should learn about?
0: <laughs> and no, honestly, I, I feel the exact same way as you do. And in my opinion, um as a new grad, I'm using um my residency as the way to get the the new and latest information, which is why I wanted to be in this residency program. But I think I would recommend to all the optometrists out there that want to look for information, again, I haven't found a centralized area, but I feel like asking anyone that's in academia will know at least a little, maybe a little bit more of the latest information than someone who's not um, in academia.
3: Yeah, actually, I should mention that uh, pedic on their website, all of uh, they have a list of all of their publications, mm-hmm. and they're all available for for free download.
0: I think it would be nice for you to give like a very quick, short summary of your step-by-step process for amblyopia. Then, so if someone, if a child comes in with amblyopia, what's your step-by-step thought process for treating it? See, let's say that I'm seeing
3: a new patient uh, for amblyopia, and we go through the exam and we say yes, for sure, this is amblyopia. Um, And just for argument's sake, we'll say that it's unilateral amblyopia. So step one will be I give glasses, then I'll see him back in six to eight weeks. Measure VAs and a few other things again. If the VAs stay the same, then at that point I would likely start patching or atropine. I usually give my patients the choice; they almost always pick patching. Most of the studies say, you know, regardless of the VA and the depth of the amblyopia, you're going to start with a couple hours. So two hours a day, with with some near activity if you can. Mm-hmm. See them back again in six to eight weeks. Measure everything again. Uh, let's say we at this point we get an improvement about a line, which is typically expected repeat rinse and repeat for another six to eight weeks and now let's say you're on your fourth third or fourth visit and the va has plateaued so at that point i would say okay let's try to up this to six hours if we can um, usually at that point i will usually, if the va of the amblyopic eye is within a couple lines of the good eye um i will start to offer vision therapy as well You'll see practitioners offer VT maybe a little bit earlier. At least in my experience, I find that I need to help the VA get a little bit better before the the VT becomes very effective. So I usually wait until it's a couple line difference, but you don't have to. Um, So at that point, usually now I'm seeing them more on a weekly basis and doing an office VT. And by then, most of my patients I've had actually luckily have gotten to about 2020. And then at that point, then yeah, start to taper see him back in another six to eight weeks, and then slowly start to drag out, you know, cut down the patching, see them, you know, I'm trying to get them back onto like an annual, like an annual routine.
0: If only every patient was that perfect.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, what, 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 I'm, what I'm leaving out in between there is I didn't patch. I lost the patch. I lost yeah. my glasses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hate patching. I hate you. Like, <laughs> like, there's all of that in there.
0: Actually, I think um, I do want to ask, have you treated any
3: adults for amblyopia? The last one I can think of was a couple years ago. I'm actually not going to talk about her. The other one I will talk about is actually one of my first. Um, So she actually started off as an isometropic hyperope. She was 60 and, you know, One of the things she said to me in the beginning was before my parents passed, one of the things that um, I wanted to do to honor them was to get back into amblyopia treatment um, after all those years when I was a kid of just not patching. (laughs) And (laughs) she's like 60 at this point, right? (laughs) She's like, Is it too late? I kind of just want to try. Sure. <laughs> what, do we have, what do we have to lose? We, we started patching. And at that point, um, this was maybe about seven or eight years ago. Um, we we're like, well, why don't we just also start VT at the same time? Because she was 2030 in the amblyopic eye, 2020 20, um, in the good eye. And it's like, well, what do we have to lose? Might as well. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It took a long time. She was in VT for a couple years. But within that time, we saw her suppression slow, really slowly start to go away. And she improved to 2020 minus, actually, in the amblyopic eye. Last I checked, she's not doing any VT anymore. She's not doing any patching anymore. Um, She is, it's now been three or four years since she discontinued everything. I still see her for annuals and her VA has stayed. Like it's, it's held. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh,
3: And this was even before all the, like we had more papers to to look at, at those some data. Um, So she was, yeah, really inspiring. I was going to say, I feel like what we should really, point out and highlight
0: from that story is that it took a long time even mm-hmm. though it was successful but with adult patients it's not that we can't treat amblyopia but you have to warn the patient and let okay. them know that there could be success but we have to be patient like right. a long time like years not just months
3: now, setting the correct expectations I, I guess for patients of all ages is really important
1: I I mean, I think you killed like all the questions (laughs) really quickly. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was great. I think um, I feel a lot more confident now about treating kids. And because a lot of these questions, I was like, I really don't know what to do. So I'm really glad um, that we had this session.
3: Oh, for sure. Well, thank you. No, thank you. Yeah, I tend to talk really fast. Sorry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your time.
3: You're very, you're very welcome. Anytime.
2: Thank you to everyone for listening to four eyes. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating to give us feedback on how we're doing. You can also check us out on Instagram at four eyes opt for more content. Look out for new episodes every Wednesday. So until then stay tuned.